I, I don't know why I haven't done this every week, printed out the uh, passage from today. If you want to take one and then pass it back, I would appreciate it. Let us pray, gracious Father, for this morning for our church, for your word and um, uh, our life um, hidden in you. We give you thanks. Now speak, Lord, in a special way, unclog our ears and awaken our eyes so that we may hear you um, and be changed thereby. We beg this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <coughs> Excuse me. The conclusion of this short uh, breeze through um, the book of Galatians, by no means a, a comprehensive look at Galatians or anything approaching a verse by verse, uh, really became a way for me to think about some things that I wanted to uh, think a little bit further about. I was expecting that. What I didn't expect is it sort of assumed a, uh, an extended comment on a, on a couple of sentences by Martin Luther on a commentary of his on Psalm 5. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, otherwise somebody's going to break into a seizure here. So. Um, and it might have been me, which would have been really fun. Like, Do you remember that time when? So, um, uh, in fact, turn it back on. That's the best way for me to... Um, a comment from Martin Luther on Psalm 5, uh, on what it means to be a theologian. He had a lot to say about that. He had a lot to say about what it means to be a theologian. And Luther was, was, was very forceful in trying to evacuate the ideas about, about theology because, as he saw it, theology got the church into a royal mess, which is why the church needed to be reformed. He didn't go around to try to start a new church. He had no intention in any way, shape, or form of starting a new branch of Christendom, what became known as Protestantism. He certainly didn't want anything approaching something with his name appended to it, Lutheranism. Um, he, would have, he would have recoiled at that idea. He did, in the early part of his career, pulling up Paul, saying, what are we doing? I mean, he follows Paul, and he follows Cephas, and he follows, you know, Luther was a, by no means. He just took Paul straight out of, of, uh, of Paul's, Paul's letter to Corinth and said, that's not me. Um, it's the church, the bride of Christ, that, we, that, that I'm interested in. Not myself, um, not, not something new. Far be it from anything new, we need to have the church reformed by the old. Let's go back. He was, he was enough of a humanist there. He said, let's go back to the source, ad fontes, and let's go back to the word, the living word of God. And so in so doing, he went back especially to the Old Testament. Interesting, Luther was what we would call now an Old Testament scholar. That would be his, he'd be Mark Genelet. Um, uh, he would teach at Beeson, he would teach Old Testament. He wouldn't teach systematics, didn't do Newton. He was an Old Testament scholar and loved the Psalms, called him the Little Bible. And so he wrote a comment on Psalm 5, just in passing of many other things that he said. And he said, it is a theologian is not in learning or in, in idle speculation. And there's this comment on what theology had become, what people who wanted to comment on what it means to... Uh, to, uh, to know the word of God, the theos logos. Um, uh, he says that has nothing to do with being a theologian. It has nothing to do with mere learning or idle speculation, um, what we would call degrees or how many years you've studied or whatever else. What it means, what makes one a theologian. And in so doing, he just always very subtly but, but very consistently puts ourselves in the passive tense, passive, passio, passion, suffering, where we suffer the Word of God, where we suffer the position of being the creature. And so I showed that, that uh, 
that image of a sculpture that stands outside of a church in Germany um, of, a, of, a, of, of the listener, chief organ of a Christian is in the ear and the elongated hands cupped around the very large ears that those who hear, who suffer, he would say, the word of God, they are theologians. Those who suffer the theos logos are theologians. Um, uh, for it is those who live, uh, who, who are living and dying and who are being damned, they are theologians. And so that's what this class is going to become. And to say all that really is a way of introduction just to kind of climb back in, looking around. I know specifically all this is the first time for others who have been here every week. And just trying to, to frame our short time together and, and to whatever extent you want to go back and listen to the classes. It's, a, it's become an extended comment on what that means. What, what might it mean to suffer the living word of God where God uh, does who he is. Where God does who he is. Where the activity of God is an extension of who he is. Uh, where the word of God is an extension of who he is. Because when, when God speaks, who he is happens. The Lord is life. And so when he speaks, especially the word of the gospel, he, uh, uh, life happens. When the word speaks in his ministry of the law, death happens. For it is, it is, it is the Lord's to kill and it is the Lord's to make alive. To kill the sinner and to bring alive the new Adam. Um, it's a hard word, but that's a theos logos. That's the word of God, and that's a theologian, one who would live and die and suffer being damned so that uh, those who would know that would surely know uh, uh, the life in Christ. And that's the, that's the letter to Galatians. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, for I have been crucified with Christ, as he says in Galatians 2.20, which we looked at, and we'll look at again as a restatement later on in Galatians 6. So that's the way of introduction. Any comments or thoughts? Kind of clicking back in. Then let's read the text, um, which I now finally, for some reason, didn't do it before, but have placed before you. Um, Galatians 5. Um, the Galatians is six chapters, so this is towards the end of the book. Um, uh, 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 Galatians 5.16. This is going to be the, uh, the fruit of the Spirit, which many of us would know um, from teaching Sunday school or being suffering Sunday school, you might say. Uh, that was supposed to be funny, and it wasn't. Um, uh, 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 the fruit of the Spirit passage, um, and, and a little bit more. But I say, uh, well, here, let me have a comment first. Um, I went through, just as I read it and kind of sat with this last couple of days, uh, and highlighted in these verses which we have before us, plus one verse that's not here in, in 6.8, here's how he speaks of the Spirit. And it's just interesting for those who kind of follow classes here. Uh, this, this might mean something. Don't get hung up here if you don't. Paul is sometimes accused, not really, yeah, sometimes. He's accused of being weak on the Holy Spirit. Um, by no means. <laughs> Uh, listen to how often he refers to the Spirit here in these, in these few short chapters. In 5.16, we walk by the Spirit. Most, have these, most of these things have to do with, uh, with what a Christ-like life looks like. Um, it's going to be a Spirit-controlled life. Those who are justified by faith, Melanchthon would say, Philip Melanchthon, Luther's sort of successor, his, his pupil and then successor, 
Stephen described it as the double gift of justification. He kind of took what Luther did and expanded a little bit, that as we are justified by faith, so also was present love. And Thomas Cramner, our Anglican guy, uh, really got in there. He said, although we are justified by faith only, um, by faith alone, sola fide, uh, it is not faith alone. Um, There is also, with faith always follows love. And that's really important to remember because as uh, we are justified by faith, with faith, uh, instantly, you would say, with the gospel, love is present, and the works of love begin to be manifest as fruit follows a root, and that's where we're going to follow the fruit of the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, which is present in, in, in engendering that love, we might say. Um, and so all this ways that he speaks of the Spirit. We walk by the Spirit in 5.16. In 5.17, he contrasts the flesh against the Spirit. In 5.18, we are led by the Spirit. In 5.22, he begins to describe the fruit of the Spirit. In 5.25, he says we live by the Spirit. Again, in 5.25, he exhorts us to keep in step with the Spirit. And then in 6.1, he says, you who are spiritual... It's good to break that word down. It stares at us so much that we forget spiritual. It's not sort of a vague spirituality, but and there's some ways that you could look at this otherwise, but, but to consider Paul saying, you who are of the Holy Spirit, i.e. spiritual, the adjective form of those who are controlled by the Spirit, you who are spiritual. And then in 6.8, um, to, uh, I can't read my own writing, um, to step with the Spirit. Uh, the Spirit permeates Paul's thought. So, I say all that because listen now to the Theos Logos, to the Word of God, and, uh, and listen to the Holy Spirit um, as, as intertwined. Remember, the Trinity has no jealousy. And uh, we are Christocentric. We are Christ-centered. For it is Christ's death and resurrection which makes us Christians. Uh, the Trinity is not jealous. The Holy Spirit's not jealous that Christ gets all the, the, good, the good lines or something like that, um, that he gets all the airplay. Uh, where Christ is, the Holy Spirit certainly is as well. And here is those who are crucified with Christ, uh, keep in step, live by, are spiritual. Um, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Um, So now I'd like to spend about 15 minutes talking about orgies. Um, That was for Ron. Um, And things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the things of God. Remember just last chapter, he was contrasting heirs um, with slaves. And so he's kind of back into his, uh, into his, 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 uh, his letter. But the fruit of the Spirit, contrasted to the works of the flesh, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and fruit. Singular, by the way. John Harper taught me this, um, emphasized it. The fruit of the Spirit is. Fruit is. Not the fruits are. You don't separate these things. The fruit within the apple are all these things. It is one fruit with a gracious melange of color, of flavor. Uh, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, 
faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught, overtaken in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. A very arresting phrase. And so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each member, you are drunk. Who has bewitched you? And he's back into that vein. Uh, If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. And then skipping down a few verses. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So these are some soaring words of Paul. Let me just hit pause and... Let kind of marinate and wash over us for those who've been following the class, you know, tying together some loose ends. What questions, if any, impressions, um, redundancies, themes, uh, what drippings seem to uh, be present right now as we're just hearing this or reading it? Oh, sure. We're giving way to like Andrew's sermon discusses idolatry. Clearly. You know, so he's je- it's not jealous within himself. Okay, the three persons of the Trinity are not jealous of each other. But our God is jealous God, which is interesting. We don't usually think of jealousy as a positive trait. But there it is. Um, God does who he is. And he's a jealous God. What does that mean? You are my people. You will belong to none other. I will have you at any cost. Um, That jealousy, the pursuit, the hound of heaven, as Francis Thompson called him, um, he will pursue and pursue and pursue and pursue. And those whom he has foreknown from the beginning of time, from before time was time, make no mistake, Mark, they will belong to me. Our God is a jealous God and is a fearful thing to fall into his hands. Um, That's all from Hebrews. Absolutely. He's not jealous within himself. The Father, the Son is not jealous of the Father, and the Spirit is not jealous of the Son, and the Son of the Spirit is not jealous of the Father. They, they're right there. The Shack, remember that book? Mm-hmm. It's actually worth reading, and that's, that's good. They're not jealous of each other. There's a bound, they're just like, ah, it's so great. I delight in you. Um, so. Let's go through this, and i got a couple of illustrations. Um, not really sure I'm going to play those out. But a little bit of text work, and then... Uh, and then we'll kind of go to a part two. But I say, um, well, the preface, remember freedom. It is for freedom that you have been set free, that you are free. 
That's Galatians 5.1. In some ways, the center of the, the book. Uh, a comment on what it means to be free. That we are now, in fact, free. Free to what? Free to live. Um, free to... Uh, to bear our own load, but also to bear one another's burdens. Very strange the way he puts that in within a, just a, a division of three verses in, 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 in chapter 6. Um, it's as if he's saying uh, we are freed by the crucified Christ who is now our life, for we've been crucified and it is no longer our life who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And so now the freedom that we live Although things like the law and sin and death and the world and the flesh and the devil, they may touch us and they may tempt us and we may suffer pain from their hand. At the same time, we are free from their final accusation. Death no longer has dominion over us. It's as if we say to death, um, it is as if we say to the law, it is as if we say to the world, as Paul says at the bottom, I've been crucified to the world and the world to me. It's like, look, world, law, death, temptation, envy, rivalry, drunkenness, or all the things such as these. I see you. I'm tempted. Uh, I'm hurting. I'm suffering. I am being damned. And yet it's a jurisdictional problem. You no longer have jurisdiction over me. For you see, you only have jurisdiction over people that are alive over creatures that are alive, and I am dead. I am dead. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And now it is Christ who is my life, Christ who is my hope. Paul says that elsewhere. Uh, Christ who is the way, the truth, the life. Uh, Christ who is my righteousness. As he has overcome death, as he has now brought to come to the end of the law, um, it's like reaching the end of the internet. <laughs> Christ reached the end of the law. Um, he is righteous. And now what he is, we are. Because we belong to him and we've been crucified. It's a jurisdictional issue. And that means we are free. It still means we suffer the pain in these in-between times. The time in between the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. And the time when he comes again. We're in these in-between times. And Paul does not have a Pollyannish view. It's like we are suffering as in the pains of childbirth for the revelation of the sons of men. Uh, but, Mark, it's a jurisdictional issue. It has no dominion over us. And this is his comment, where the fruit of the Spirit can begin to be formed. Uh, but before we get there, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And Paul wants to go a little bit there, talk about what are these desires of the flesh, this work of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And stopping there, um, uh, that word, desires of the flesh, going all the way back to Genesis, Genesis 4. Remember, um, things didn't start well. There were no good old days. Um, there was Adam and there was Eve, and then it was good and then it was not good because uh, the apple was et, and they were banished from Eden, and then they went out after. The, the, after the banishment, east of Eden, and then uh, they had Cain, and then they had Abel, and Cain and Abel grew up, and then uh, Cain killed his brother. <laughs> the first family, <laughs> not good. 
Um, Cain killed his brother. And this is what it says, personifying the same word desires, the desire of the flesh that goes all the way back to Genesis 4. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. This hunger, this yearning, this covetousness, this jealousy that sin has because he's setting apart the, the fruit of the, of, the, of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit and this personified sin, um, as Peter would say, um, beware for our adversary the devil is crouching around looking for someone to devour. It's an active living thing, this evil, this desire uh, which sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you and you must rule over it. And then Victor Hugo wrote a little poem um, actually, parts of it's part of a much longer poem, and this painting by a French painter named Fernand Corman in 1880. I don't know anything about him except I've always liked this painting. This is called uh, Cain Flying Before Jehovah's Curse, because when Cain killed Abel, he confronted God, and God sent him on the run. And Victor Hugo had this to say. I just read this this morning. It's really an arresting little verse. Aged, rejected by death's scornful hand, doomed abject, trembling through long years to plod. People, avoid that man, marked by a brand. Let Cain pass by, for he belongs to God. Aged, rejected by death, scornful hand, doomed, abject, trembling through long years to plod. People, avoid that man, marked by a brand. Let Cain pass by, for he belongs to God. The fruit of the flesh is evident, and it's evident as Cain flees from before Jehovah's curse, because the fruit of the flesh, if we look at that list, what's one thing I note in it? I don't want to press this too far, but sin is very isolating. This is me sort of melding my psychology and theology world. Sin is very isolating. C.S. Lewis would say the same thing in his vision of hell in, in a, what's that called? The Great Divorce, um, where we keep isolating ourselves ad infinitum until finally we just going to get lost in the gray lands until we never ever 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 have any contact with anything else absolute total isolation um, people have nothing to do with this man for he belongs to God now that's a hard word and here's the fruit of the flesh being portrayed in just one way uh, in just one way um, as Cain flies before Jehovah's curse this is of course Cain and they're wandering in an arid and barren landscape utter isolation utter desolation abject just ad infinitum just terror very evocative to me the fruits of the flesh are evident uh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Massively self-centered, person bent in upon themselves, isolating, isolating, isolating. Contrast that to the... Um, I would have had an next slide. Um, to the fruit of the, um, of the Spirit. Uh, well... Quick comment on that. Um, let me roll through this quick. Paul, really interesting. What is he doing sort of in his context? He is saying something pretty remarkable um, against all sort of the pre 
pre-biblical figures. Of course, that'd be Greek philosophers like Socrates and Plato and the others and stuff like that. Paul is saying something pretty radical, still radical today. He's saying, look, the natural way of things is this. This is not the unnatural. This is the natural. Left to ourselves, we're Cain. Left to ourselves, the fruit of the flesh. For the spirit is the invasion from the outside. From the inside out, uh, by your fruit you will know them. And it's these sorts of things. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, etc., 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 etc. The pagan moralists, you might say. People who want to tell us how to live absent a conceptualization of God. Uh, they would say that, no, 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 left to ourselves, this is an overstatement, of course, but left to ourselves, we're self-correcting. We're going to find ways to connect to each other. The Bible says, nah, not so fast. In fact, by no means. Left to ourselves, we isolate. We, we, we serve ourselves. You've got to serve somebody, just like, like, uh, like Andrew quoted again, Dylan. We quote him all the time here. I've got another quote of him today. Um, uh, and, and left to ourselves, you know who I'm going to serve? Me. I'm going to serve myself. I'm going to pursue my own interest. If it benefits you, so much the better, but really, it's all about me. Uh, Left to ourselves, uh, natural man serves himself. And again, I pick on Ben Franklin, and I shouldn't, but I do. Um, This is at least the early Ben Franklin. Um, I I should read more about him because I do pick on him a lot. Franklin was a Unitarian. What does that mean? It means it's not a Trinitarian. A Trinitarian believes in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Unitarian would say, well, I believe maybe there's probably a God. But the whole sort of, you know, revealed in Christ with the atonement, trying to reckon for sin, and then the Holy Spirit coming and engendering the love, I'm not going there. Most Unitarians would have something like the watchmaker idea, that something started at uh, and then it kind of set the world in motion, and now it's up to us because naturally we're going to be okay. That was certainly Ben Franklin. And so he, when he was 20, even went through and, and uh, got a piece of his autobiography. He, um, he writes this in his autobiography. Now, granted, I think there's probably a little bit of sort of aged um, uh, wisdom looking back on his much younger self um, with a little bit of sarcasm, like, can you believe I did that kind of thing? But not completely. He still thought, he thought he could improve himself because naturally we're tending to go up. And Franklin said this, It was about this time that I conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. I wished to live without committing any fault at any time. I would conquer all that either natural inclination, custom, or company, so you people, might lead me into. As I knew or thought I knew what was right or wrong, I did not see why I might not always do the one and avoid the other. So, knowledge implies ability. Uh, but I was soon found that I had taken a task of more difficulty than I had imagined. So you think, aha, he's going to be okay. While my care was employed in guarding against one fault, I was often surprised by another, ha- another. Habit took advantage of inattention. Inclination was sometimes too strong for reason. I concluded at length, not that, oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death, but I concluded at length, double down. That mere speculative conviction that it was our interest to be completely, it was in our interest, utility, to be completely virtuous, and it was not sufficient to prevent our slipping, and that the contrary habits must be broken, good ones acquired and established, before we can have any dependence on a steady, uniform rectitude of conduct. For this purpose, I therefore contrived the following method. So he confronted himself and realized, I thought this would be easy because I knew what I ought to do, but I wasn't doing it. 
So rather than going with Paul, he just said, so I need to get serious. And he came up, he developed an app, basically, is what, what we would call it now. He developed an app and he graphed this out. He came up with 13 virtues and then ordered out Sunday to Monday, 13 virtues, many could repeat it four times a year, 52 weeks. Um, and once a week, he would concentrate on one of the virtues, temperance, silence, let me look at what these are, temperance, silence, order, resolution, frugality, industry, lose no time, the whole you know, early to bed, early to rise stuff, sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness, tranquility, chastity, and humility. Um, chastity, I just had a fun word, I learned a new word, rarely use venery, but for health or offspring, never to dullness, weakness, or the injury of one or another's peace or reputation. Venery. I have to share with y'all, like venereal, like Venus. Rarely use sexual uh, behavior, but for health or offspring. Never to dullness until you get sort of, you know, so used to it, it means nothing. Weakness or the injury of another. Uh, laugh. I thought that was funny. So, um, so he went through this and tried to go through and concentrate on one a week, so temperance. And, uh, and he would, at the end of the day, say, well, how did I do? And he was really especially trying to get temperance worked out. Um, but he would look at all the others and he'd put a dot if, no, I did that. But see, I did pretty good this week on temperance, the one that I was concentrating on. And so by hard work and faithful attention, he thought he could make himself better. And looking back on his life, you know what happened? He said, I'd give myself probably a B plus or an A minus. Order was much harder than what I thought. Order is the one that stumbled. He stumbled on. Otherwise, he thought, I've done, I've done pretty well with the rest. I actually made myself more humble. Uh, <laughs> and, he, and he said that. And he said, I had to sort of change my language and say, like, well, I've sort of apprehended, you know, rather than saying I am more humble, because he realized that I became a bore around other people. <laughs> so he said all this. So um, he's, he's a trip. I need to read more about it. So if anybody knows anything else about Ben Franklin, send it to me. I'd love to know. Paul is not Ben Franklin. Um, Paul finds the other way through. So let me find a way out. Um, he absolutely did. Absolutely did. It's not in the Bible. Um, that is not, um, that's not Proverbs 32, which doesn't exist. That's a, that's a fictitious um, uh, chapter in the Bible. Um, that's Ben Franklin. Wise, certainly, in his own way, uh, but, but not helpful. I would say, in fact, injurious. Um, so, we go through, uh, after Ben Franklin, uh, let me contrast that with Luther. Uh, and something that his mentor, uh, Johann von Stoppitz, once told him, page 336. So, remembering that, um, Luther says this, I remember what Stoppitz used to say. I have vowed unto God a thousand times that I would become a better man, but I never performed that which I vowed. Hereafter, I will make no such vow. So hear the word freedom. What is he saying? Uh, like Ben Franklin, he said, I vowed a thousand times. You know, I want to be somebody other than who I am. When I wake up in the morning, the person that I see, that's not who I want to become. I want to be somebody else. And so like Franklin, stop it. Uh, Luther's confessor said, uh, I vowed to God a thousand times I would become a better man, but I never performed that which I vowed. Hereafter, I will make no such vow, for I have learned now by experience that I am not able to perform it. 
Unless therefore God be favorable and merciful unto me for Christ's sake, and grant unto me a blessed and happy hour, when I shall depart out of this miserable life, I shall not be able, with all my vows and all my good deeds, to stand before him. Thus they must all confess those who will be saved. For the godly, not trusting in their own righteousness, will say, uh, Lord, if thou should mark my iniquities, as in this little graph, uh, O Lord, who shall stand? Um, so this reckoning between who I want to be and who I'm not. The desires of the flesh are evident, and I flee in the vein of Canaan. I mean, the vein of Cain. Uh, where do we go with this? Quickly, let me run this through. I remember Paul Walker's sermon just a week and a half ago. If y'all came first Thursday, day after Ash Wednesday, we're giving up stuff for Lent. And Paul Walker said, look, I'm not against giving things up for Lent. It might help you. Go ahead, try it. But I remember I wrote when I was a young priest uh, to somebody, and I said, uh, what guidance would you have for me? And the first thing that his mentor, his stoppet, said to him was, do not give up beer for Lent. <laughs> Isn't that a great word? He's like, what in the world? And he read on. He says, if you're going to do anything, you know, try something else. Try something real. Uh, because what if you should give it up? Then what? You've actually got a success that you're going to think, ah, I gave up beer for Lent. You know, go underneath it. If you're going to give something up, try something real. Give up worry. Give up anxiety. Give up flying off the handle, a fit of rage. Uh, give up walking into a room, whatever your room is, whether it's carpool, uh, a boardroom, uh, a waiting room at the doctor's office. Give up walking into a room and immediately sizing everybody up, knowing what they're wearing, uh, what, they, what their probable education is, uh, what their children are like, where you're putting yourself vis-a-vis -vis them. Try giving that up. Try giving it up where you immediately know where you fall on the pecking order, where the human heart, where it just proceeds out of it like fruit from a diseased root. Try giving that up for Lent. Let's see how it goes. Let's see what needs we actually have. That's a great word. And that's what Stoppitz was telling Luther. Uh, that's contra Ben Franklin. If you're going to develop an app, develop one with real, real meat and see how you're doing. Because then, um, uh, do I want to do this? Sure. Um, you know, I'm getting to a point I feel like I'm in a rut, just repeating myself, but I can't help it. Um, Flannery O'Connor, again, uh, in her short story, Revelation, has this great character named Ruby Turpin. I'll put that up there, too. Ruby Turpin. Um, Ruby Turpin did what I just described. She's a large woman in the South, and she walks in with her husband because her husband just to a doctor's office because her, do her husband just got kicked by a cow and he's got a big ulcer on his leg, and he's got to sit down, but it's a very full and small waiting room. Uh, and she thinks, like a lot of Flannery O'Connor's characters, that she's a lady with manners. You know, she's a Southerner. She's a Southern lady. She um, is not common. That'd be a phrase that she would use. She, um, uh, she knows exactly where she stands. And she walks into the room and she immediately sizes up the white trash over here. And, oh, look at that girl. Of course, she's a student at Wellesley College and she's reading a book called Human Development. Um, and she's uh, ugly uh, and unattractive. She immediately sizes everything up and keeps putting herself up there. And there's one woman in the room that maybe she could relate to. And so she immediately gravitates to that woman 
let me pull this out, because she's going to realize um, how the fruit of the flesh is evident, but how the fruit of the Spirit manifests itself in a very strange way. Some of the ways that um, Ruby Turpin was described, um, without appearing to, Mrs. Turpin always noticed people's feet. The well-dressed lady had on gray, uh, red and gray, see Stephen, red and gray suede shoes to match her dress. Miss Turpin had on her black patent leather pumps. The ugly girl had on Girl Scout shoes and heavy socks. The old woman had on tennis shoes and the white trashy mother had on what appeared to be bedroom slippers, black straw with gold braid threaded through them, exactly what you would have expected her to have on. So she just drips with all this judgment and she comes into a really high-flying self-righteousness where she's in fact thanking God that she not, I was not made as such white trash. Um, and she even has these imaginary fantasies. If I wasn't born me, and God said, who would you make me to be? Um, who would you want to be? Would you want to be white trash or this other sort? I don't want to be either one of those, Lord. I want to be just who I am because I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm your special one. And she just goes through all this way. And then the Wellesley student throws a book at her, hits her square in the head, and she falls down on the floor. And then she says, uh, she says, uh, go back to hell, go back to where you came from. Go back to hell, you old fat warthog. You warthog from hell, that's what she says. Let me see if I can find the, um, uh, it's a good one. Where's the revelation? Um, this is where I wasn't, there it is. Um, all at once, her vision, revelation. Being able to see, this is how I'm going to wrap up the series. Remember, who has bewitched you? Who has bewitched you? Why are you so drunk? Church, Galatia, I was just among you. Remember, I preached Christ crucified to you so vividly. For I resolved to know nothing when I was among you except Christ and Him crucified that you could see Him. You knew His finished work and the freedom that you had thereby. Who has bewitched you? Who made you drink the strong drink so that you were drunk, so that you could not see, so that you could not hear, so that you did not know what was true and what was false. For these people that came in among you and preached this false, quote, gospel, which is no gospel at all, you've begun to drink that Kool-Aid, and now, now you are drunk, and he's calling them back. Don't go there. Remember the way things are. Call a spade a spade. See things clearly. And that's Flannery O'Connor. Revelation. Being able to see things. All at once her vision swept. The book struck her head. All at once her vision narrowed and she saw everything as if it were happening in a small room far away or as if she were looking at it through the wrong end of a telescope. Claude's face, that's her husband, crumpled and fell out of sight. The nurse ran in, then out, then in again and the gangling figure of the doctor rushed out of the inner door. Magazines flew this way, and, what, and that was. Uh, magazines flew this way and that as the table turned over. The girl fell with a thud, and Mrs. Turpin's vision suddenly reversed itself, and she saw everything large instead of small. The eyes of the white, trashy woman were staring hugely at the floor. There, the girl, held down on one side by the nurse and on the other by her mother, was wrenching and turning in their grasps. And then later, the girl raised her head. Her gaze locked with Miss Turpin's. Go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. Uh, 
And her voice was low but clear. Her eyes burned for a moment as if she saw with pleasure. And then her message had struck its target. And then later, Mrs. Turpin, after really doing some business with the Lord, seeing things and even standing uh, at the horizon, as Jim Palmer pointed out, that's always where it's about to happen. The sacred is about to meet the profane. Standing at the horizon, she looks up to God and says, Who the hell do you think you are? And then, she, uh, and then the sun slipped finally behind the tree line, and Miss Turpin remained there with her gaze bent to them as if she were absorbing some abysmal, life-giving knowledge. A visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw the streak as vast as a swinging bridge extending upward from the earth, sort of like Jacob's ladder, uh, upward from the earth through the field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were rumbling towards heaven, and there were whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives, bands of others in white robes, battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. Bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and Claude, always had a little bit of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they'd always had been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key, the respectable, uncommon folk. Yet, she could see by their shocked, altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. So you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Our virtues, all the Ben Franklin, everything else, uh, they do nothing for us. Where Bob Dylan, let me see if I can force this quote in, this is what Jono brought us to the men's retreat, made a quote once, God, I thank God, um, God, I'm glad I'm not me. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, uh, uh, and Christ who lives in me. I'm glad I'm not me, where the fruits of the flesh are evident but hidden in Christ, who is our righteousness, we now can go forth free to have the fruit of the Spirit. Peace, joy, love, patience, gentleness, self-control. Against these things there is no law. So i got to stop. Um, another point, we'll figure out how to live life knowing that, and it still hurts. So I know that's not the end of the question, but it's a good start to another conversation. Let me pray. Lord, come, be present, correct me where I'm wrong. Um, take these words and uh, attach yourself to them uh, to allow your work to be done in your way. May it not lack for any needed thing. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.